Hello and welcome to another episode of Northwestify uh, with myself, John Cleary, and uh, Zach Giorgio. Today on the show, we have Deal Jazz, uh, the head of technology over Print Little Thing. And I know, Zach, you're really excited about this. Oh, I'm so excited. I can't tell you, you know, it's, I just can't wait to chat to a deal and you about, obviously, you guys have known each other for a long time. John, yourself, obviously five and a half years ago, five years ago, now you taught me loads about tech and a deal. The fastest talking man in tech that I know, always uh, have, have a laugh and have a chat with you about it. And, you know, I think we were instrumental in, in originally getting you across to PLT. And, you know, nowadays it's just great working with you. So I'm really looking forward to this one and having a really good laugh with you two guys today. So, yeah. Fantastic. So, uh, so welcome, Adil. Thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, no, very nice to be here. And I'm just not fast talker. I'm also fast moving. Zach, I'm well, head of innovation now. I pretty think I got promoted. <laughs> <laughs> head of innovation, right? I really want to get into that, right? I want to, I want to hear what head of innovation does. Uh, but let's let's go right back to the start of your career or your interest in tech. And let's, do you mind just walking us through it a bit, please? Yeah, I have a, a very interesting story I was in last year of my university and I was interested in finding a job that gave me some experience happened to walk into a company uh, after numerous failed interviews they took me on board and it was a very and it was a company that was just taking on e-commerce at that time very very early I'm talking about 2006 and nowadays it's very easy to explain think of it as Airbnb but for florist industry so it's essentially just that and they were very ahead of their time essentially and I got to build everything from scratch uh, you talk about servers talk about installing PHP every database management SEO UX UI just act framework before symphony was a thing so it was all really hands-on approach and learned a lot of stuff on the job uh, worked with some very amazing people there and kind of grew up grew up from there essentially and then it, it just became a, a, a like a role learning on the job just trying to figure things out. I had a knack for it uh, in a way. Uh, and, and it was really a huge opportunity where you have this amazing e-commerce platform and you kind of drive. The, and, I, and I got very lucky because I was able to not just uh, innovate on technology side, but also business side. I was Because it was a very flat structured, small family-run business. I was able to provide business feedback. Like, why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? And was able to push things through and yeah, got to learn very quickly on how business side things work. I think commercially, how things work in a business as well. And how can you drive innovation, not just by technology, but also speaking to right people. Then I got, a, a, I worked there in a half years, made a huge, amazing product that is being used all around the world uh, by all the flowers. It's, it's completely changed the forest industry, essentially. Uh, very, very successful. And then I moved on to work for another company, uh, which, is a, which was a, a multinational US company. And there I kind of learned the red tape side of things. <laughs> What's wrong with the big companies? Uh, but it was good because it gave me a very different picture because I was used to working in a place where everything kind of flew in the way you wanted it to. But now you all of a sudden had to convince 30 other people why you should do something that way or, or figure out how to push in the right direction as a team. How do you come up with... Uh, approach where you need to kind of tell somebody off without upsetting them because you need them on your side. So it was a very humbling and uh, really learned a lot about Scrum and Agile, kind of like uh, how to do it at a company level. I heard, um, your, and I heard your boss was a real ass there. Is that right? Which one? <laughs> <laughs> you, can yeah. say, you can say who I was. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, so no, so, I so I said this a lot. You know, the, the the reason I joined that company wasn't John Clary. I I talked to him, and I was like, I want to work with this guy. So I was like, you know, because the persona I got was this is how a team leader should be, and I need to learn from. And I did. I mean, even nowadays when I sit down sometimes and I'm frustrated with my team, I sit down and think, what would John do in this scenario? Oh, thank you. So, so, so much zen from this guy. I mean, I was like, what would it take you to be bad? How would you be upset about something? Tell me, because I can't deal with this. So yeah, it was, it, it's, it's a very, it was very humbling work, you know, very learned a lot from you. So yeah, it was good. Uh, the other bosses, not so much. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it, was, it was a very good experience. But then I got this amazing, amazing opportunity at Pretty Little Thing at a time when, and I used to tell anybody what, I'm working on Pretty Little Thing and my friend used to say, Pretty Little what? You know, but now it's a thing everybody knows about. So, and it was a very interesting role and I actually rejected it first. I didn't want the job. I interviewed and I came back saying, nah, not for me. Uh, but my IT director, James McDougall, asked me to come back. He said, you know what, come back, we'll have another chat. And he said, you know, this is a, this role, I need it to be technical. I do not want it, somebody coming in. It was a solutions architecture role. So he was like, I don't want somebody coming in with no technical background because I believe in people making technical decisions once they have technical knowledge. They can't just come in and do make, you know, start running teams without having the background and what those decisions mean. And that was very, very empowering because now that all of a sudden this person understands just not what it is in, uh, possible with this role, but also sees the problem when hiring wrong people. So that was the kind of like changing moment where I thought, okay, you know, this can work. That's where kind of how I ended in pretty little thing. And it was one of the most amazing journeys I've ever had because it was just all kind of everything coming together of what I've learned in the past 15 years or so working in IT. And yeah, and being able to move fast very quickly, make, being able to make decisions, get teams, you know, moving in in the right direction, you know, pivoting when you have some, and the, and the, the culture of the company is very, very empowering. Like it makes you really want to move fast like it is like if if a business did agile that's what pretty little thing does you know we move very very quickly and this is nothing to do with it per se this is just the general way a business works and it, we kind of make decisions very fast we very react very fast we're a very reactive in a very reactive market our customers prefer you know are on the mobile phone all the time they and we feed off that and we feed off them and i've said this before in another uh, podcast is all chaotic but it's managed chaos because we try to make sure it, it has to be that you cannot keep control on this because just the whole quickly we move this business was growing 150 percent year on year when i joined and as you can imagine any any traffic we did was pretty much breaking the systems and then i was told next year expect that double so whatever we did we knew wasn't going to be enough next year so you, you had to kind of throw the rule, rule book out where you build a system for four years because here you're going to be building system every year. So that kind of gave a very good opportunity to look at what, what we can do from scratch. What, what is out there? What tech stacks can handle this scalability? How can we build systems that are very quickly pluggable and changeable? So that kind of role, kind of the head of innovation role kind of grew out of that because it made sense to start recognizing that, you know, there's, there's, there's a process of innovation and change management in technology in an organization and somebody needs to do that role. And also recognize uh, innovative ideas from generated by other people and just kind of like see where this technological change goes and, and be a part of the journey with the team um, and the business. 
so yeah, most of the strategy in terms of technology and architecture innovation kind of comes through me and then, you know, it kind of distills down to the team and the business. Brilliant. That's so interesting. I want to come back. I've made a few notes because you've said some really interesting things. And one of the first things about your first role and the, the, the thing that stuck out, you didn't say it, by the way, it occurred to me, full stack developer. And what that actually meant back then was you built the hardware <laughs> you install the operating system. You put the uh, you put the programming language on there. You wrote the code. You probably dragged it on the back of your car to the data center somewhere. Right? <laughs> just... uh, I actually one up you on that. We actually ran the website from the server next to my desk. Nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, what, what, I what's the data center? Why would you? <laughs> I could I could drag the keyboard to me and just log into the box and just change make the change right there. Um, yeah. So, but no, I, I was the I remember in those days, AWS didn't exist, so you had to go to Rackspace to go to cloud. So yeah, it was it, it was crazy times, and yeah, we and and I can say I grew up with cloud, so I saw uh, Rackspace being the like the market leader in doing what you know it brought uh, hosting to a completely different level, and now you know with AWS is also moving into that. I know a few things down as well, Adil, and you know certain things that I sort of remember when I first started met you and started speaking to you about even the opportunity at PLT and speaking to John and and, and so on. Um, and so there's a couple of things that I noticed down, and I always remember Tim saying to me, "Adil is amazing. He's a polygon. You know, he he just knows everything." Obviously, I ran that by John, and John, you know, the same, and we chatted about the opportunity, and like you mentioned, James McDougall as well, giving you the opportunity and, and going back. What, what is it about you, Adil, that it gives you that sort of level of adaptability? What, you, what is it that makes you just get it? When I look at what you've done and where you are now, solutions architect or technical architect, if you want to call it, now head of innovation, you know, I mean, you, you seem to be able to just get everything. Why, what is that? What is it about, you know? So there's, there's two bigger, big things I can think would come to my mind when you ask me the question. One is obviously you need to kind of keep learning. You cannot stop. Uh, I say this to everybody. You, the, the day you stop learning is the day you get left behind because just how quick the tech moves. And I'm not saying you need to know. Yes, I happen to be a polygon and that's by choice. I just find that exciting. To me, I like I learned I like I like to learn Swift. I've learned a bit of Kotlin because I want to you know it's just new language for Android. So it's I like to play with languages. It's kind of like you know, Ruby was a big thing that I I just uh, you know really wanted to learn. So I joined a company just to learn that. So it's one of the things. So, but just generally uh, outside programming languages, just the technology in general, you need to stay, stay up to date with it. It's, you need to know what's going on. You cannot and I, I and I kind of I kind of feel sorry for people who are in management or manager roles who are not technical. Because if, if you look, I mean, the, the model is out there. You look at, I mean, forget the, the cliched Facebook, Google, and Amazon. But if you look at Skype, you look at Netflix, you, 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 even Sainsbury's, I would say to some point now, these companies are hiring managers who are actually very technical because then they get it now. You cannot have non-technical people managing technical people. It's, it's not a production line where you can get managers. So that's a big part of the culture to make sure you're up to date. So when you do get to sit down to with developers and have a conversation with them, you get what they're talking about. It's not hot posh. So that's the kind of big part of it. And the second thing, obviously, which I said this before as well to everybody who, uh, who kind of like listens to me, is to unlearn. That's the toughest part for anybody in tech, which is to unlearn what you know, to learn something new. We kind of hold on to what we know best. And it's very difficult for somebody to convince us to move on. 
and I remember somebody saying that the hardest part is the hardest part in tech is not to learn new things, it's but to unlearn and re, uh, learn something new. You always will go back to oh I know how to do this because I've done this before, and people keep going back to that. So uh, one of the key things I take on board is always question myself constantly if this is the right way of doing it, and that's one of the things we do at Pretty Living very very well because I always say to people. If you think you know something better, keep it in the book for version two. We will rewrite this in a few months or a few years' time, and we'll come back. That's the only place where I know we have technical roadmap items where teams can say we need to refactor or rework this piece of feature with it, and we think we can do it better. Uh, whether that's a change for architecture, database design, or just generally cleaning up the code, we do that, and then we we because we understand the the value comes not from building it first time, but reiterating on it very quickly. So, and that's one of the things I find very challenging. People, you know, struggle to let go of what they know, and they want to keep hammering down their path because that's what got them in the first place. They think this is the way to do stuff, but in technology, things move very quickly. So you need to let go of and and move on with stuff. I've um, just that's really interesting. I I know people, and I've worked with them, and and I think some of us can be really guilty of this. That you get comfortable, you learn something. It was hard. You get to a level of uh, expertise that you're paid well and then somebody you know then the ground moves right? and for me the example I was quite lucky but for me the example was PHP and I'd learned it for 10 years and I'd spoken to conferences and I was I'd like to think I was fairly good at it. and was in a, in the role that well we you mentioned telecentrics and and it was like we're going to go to Ruby so I basically had to learn Ruby and that was really when I put down the PHP gloves and picked up the Ruby ones and never have gone back and done it professionally, really. I have done bits and pieces. And that's hard because you put 10 years in at being that good. And it, what is surprising is how transferable the knowledge, you know, the skills are. Um, it's still hard. It still took me two years, I'd say, to get to an okay level. And I probably, I'm not better at PHP than Ruby, but I was definitely... Um, I was definitely better at PHP, you know, at one point than I'm at Ruby now, perhaps, you know. And I think it's a fascinating point. I mean, I love that about the unlearn thing. Not many people talk about that unlearn, you know, and I think that's sort of what holds people back in, in many times in their career. People like to be within their comfort zone and people are scared to come out of their comfort zone. And it's that innovation. And you see that with Pretty Little Thing. They're innovating all the time, aren't they, from a tech perspective? Continually, 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 you know. I always, when I talk to prospective candidates about it, you know, the amount of people that want to do Agile, and you guys are Agile. You really are Agile. And all these other companies, not all of them, but a lot of companies that say they're Agile, really in the background, they want to do Waterfall, or somebody wants to do it. No, no one want to do Waterfall, want to do Agile. So it's that sort of innovation. But... Going back to the point of unlearning, for me, that if you don't unlearn certain things and move forward, it, you stagnate, don't you? And you can't go anywhere forward. So I, I, for me, that is a huge, huge point. Um, and I find it fascinating. Um, it, it, it does remind me of something, again, I read, read recently, and they were talking about how long people who've been in their career are less likely to go to, to take risks, essentially. And unlearning is a risk, right? And it's because you've got more to lose. So if you're if you're fresh out of uni and they've taught you C at uni and somebody offers you a job in Java or Go or anything, you go, eh, I've learned a bit of C at uni, but there's no big investment there. 
But if you've been doing it for five years, now there's an investment. Now there's a risk. Now there's, you've got to consider, and you might have bought a house. And da, da, da. so, you know, it gets risky. And some people are more risk adverse than others. So really interesting. Can I bring up one other thing that Dan North talks about, the half-life of code? I don't know if you've heard him mention that. And it's the time it takes for um, a business to, to modify half of their code base. And he said it should be, you know, in the order of months, you should be, if, you, if you're serious about your application, you should be turning over it that quickly. And it sounds like at PLT you do, um, which I, I think you're probably the first business I've heard of that I know anyway on, a, on this level who do. So that's, that seems pretty cool, right? That you guys are constantly iterating, like truly iterating. Yeah, exactly. than... and I think that's how it is. Software is supposed to be built. I mean, you're not supposed, you, you know, you were not, we're not IBM. I call the, you know, the IBM model where you just kind of build something in the, you know, for mainframe in three years and ship it. We're in a, in a model where we need to look at customer feedback. We need to know whether this thing is working or not. Or, you know, I, I think uh, a DHH is the person who built Rails essentially, you know, they have a very interesting model where they give a feature uh, to a team for six weeks to build. If they feel like in the six weeks they're struggling to build it, they will can it, they will not work on it anymore. And they will work on something else because they feel like if, if you can't build it in six weeks, then it's not worth spending your time on it. So it's, it, there's a lot of, lot of interesting ways of doing that. And the way we do it, thing obviously is we, so we so uh, one of the things I did early on here, and this is again, credit to the, the management here and, and James McDougall, our director was, you know, they listened. You know, I remember I saying to James, like this doesn't work the way we're working in PLT. And, and he said, look, we've tried a lot of things here. People have ideas when they join, but you know, at least let's try it. So we tried this new way of working where we started coming up with this idea of cross-functional teams, uh, where we take a, uh, take a team and make sure everything the team depends on lives in that team unit. So for, so for example, our, our, our team consists of developers, the BA who's kind of like the requirement gatherer, QA and DevOps. They kind of live in that team and then they have a scrum master that gets shared between different teams. So that well, that way, that team is completely independent of anything from anybody else. So when we did that initial change, we just thought we'll just build two teams and see how that works. It works so well. We've got eight and nine teams now, almost nine teams right now. And the idea is, again, you have two or three devs and then you kind of give them those resources and let them loose. We've, we have iterated on that a little bit more now. We did very, very recently in the last year or so we start doing something called design sprints or sprint zeros, where when they are working on a big feature or a new product, we say, these are the requirements, go through these, but come up with architecture diagram, documentation, database structure, uh, API response request kind of methodology. So they spend a week or two, depending on the size of the project, and they document everything. But what's more importantly is they discuss everything. So that's where kind of myself and the head of dev, uh, we kind of sit down, we go through everything, understand the stack, the technology, is it right, do we need to change, pivot? And a lot of those very complicated decisions get made before any code has been written. So when it comes to writing the code, of course you're gonna find some things you didn't know about it, but those are very far in between and very easily solvable because most of the grid work got done in that one or two weeks before that. And that has completely revolutionized our development cycle at PLT. Like it completely has changed the way we perceive on how projects get delivered and done now. Um, and it goes back to the idea of quick iterations is because if when there's a, a piece of work that needs to be done, whether that's uh, a technological change or, or just a, a change of feature request, it goes through the same cycle, which means it makes it easier for people to know where things are going. So you, you can start predicting 
patterns and such. Okay, this that's your velocity. That's what you're going to be delivering at. And you got start getting those normal Scrum and Agile things people talk about, but never can do because now you have a good system. Um, and the and one thing we do really really well is we listen quite a lot to the teams. Uh, that's one of the things a lot of people miss uh, as well. You need to the people in char- running this on a day to day basis are the best providers of information on how things are going. So you need to listen to them, what they're feeling, whether this is working or not, what they're struggling with. So we we have the Scrum Masters who kind of act as our, our eyes and ears in the teams that come back with feedback. So this is what the team's struggling with, or this is what they feel should be done to address these concerns. And we take very, very quick actions on those to make sure, put those people back in charge and feel like they're in control. So, and that kind of helps to gain this idea that they are in control, they are innovating, they are building. And we also let the team take their code to production. They are the, again, the DevOps in the team, they're somewhere outside. They are, they, when something goes to production as a release, they are responsible for that. So it becomes a very good working unit. Uh, and when even, even in production, for example, any monitoring, any alerts, anything, that's managed by the team themselves. So they get the alerts. We give them the infrastructure, but they, man- they build it, they maintain it in terms of how to manage any alerts or just, uh, any any concern can come out of the system. How do you how logs coming out of the system? So the, the key thing is to give control to them and then have those processes around them to help them making sure they can keep delivering code. Are those capability-based teams then? Are you, do you build those teams around the domain problems or do they, how, how, how is the functionality, you know, what they're each one responsible for? A bit of both. So what we do is, uh, obviously there's some skill related. So for, for example, some teams are very good at front end. Some teams are very good at React. Some teams are very good at Magento. Some teams are very good at serverless stack. And those and the projects are just delivered based on capability of the team sometimes and some, but sometimes availability of a team. So for example, if we feel like a team has got some free time coming up uh, and there's a project that they can pick up and if the team hasn't got a resource, then we're happy to switch around. That's something we do really, really well and again, the thing is when a team is not fixed at any point, uh, we can very easily and quickly pick somebody up. So for example, if a particular team needs a bit of JavaScript or a Node resource or a React resource, we have that capability of moving them around to kind of make sure the team gets that. And similarly, QA is a good example as well. So sometimes some releases can have be very QA heavy. A good example is a, a big launch of a big product, for example, or feature. Uh, that needs a very bit, a lot of regression manual testing. So we can actually move a couple of queues in the same team for a few weeks, uh, uh, let them run a few sprints on those. And then, you know, once it's cleared out back to normal. Kind of thing. So, but we're very heavily investing now in automation, not many testing. There's a lot of work being done on that side to kind of further make it easier for us to kind of keep uh, iterating very quickly. Nasak, you want to jump in. I want to talk about something you said right in the beginning was that you have, you know, you've got that business acronym. And you've obviously got the technical side. That's not no doubt there, right? And that that's something that you've been able to leverage in ma- in many of your roles, certainly in your first role. Um, and it reminds me of I think it was you that told me this story. So please, hopefully, I'm right. Otherwise, Denise will cutting this whole segment out um, of the Amazon buy button and how they they um, the color choice on that. Is that yes. right? Is that was yeah? You it was me. I know it's not your story, but do you mind telling the story because I think you tell it really well. Yeah, so the Amazon Babylon is a very good example of that. So Amazon, the story goes, Jeff Bezos is absolutely super, super data-driven person. He does not want to make a decision. So they tried, I believe they tried over 50 different colors of the orange button on the, on the Amazon and the placement and the side of the button just to make sure they get it right. The whole widget that you see on the right side has gone through 
so much testing on us to kind of make sure we get the, the sentiment right and how when people click that button, how that behaves. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it's, the, it's the craziness of, you know, being able to see how different things can iterate and how different things kind of work. Um, and yeah, it, it is, one of the things that I've, I learned very recently was the, the even the one-click button, for example, how they implemented that was a very, it's a huge process in the back end that kind of does a lot of things for them. But yeah, it's a it's a very but it was hugely data driven, wasn't it? That was the, they essentially yeah. did millions and millions of measurements, absolutely, um, yeah, on different and on live customers and got the found out which which shade of orange and they must have picked orange at some point, which shade made people buy more. Yeah, it's, so when you bring data into this, yeah, it, it makes a, a completely different uh, use case of how you develop things. It, it, obviously, you know, the journey that you've been on a deal and, and what you've done, as you alluded to earlier on, to, to, to where you are now and your title of Head of Innovation and Technology. One thing that technology never stops, does it? It moves, it moves, it moves. And the, the uh, development language that was most popular two years ago is different to what it is today. Um, I think it was probably around 2013, was it, where cloud maybe a bit sooner than that, but around that time where the cloud had really coming to the forefront. Would you agree with me, guys, on that? Um, where do you think we're going next? What do you think? And I know it's really difficult to answer this question, but what's the what's going to be the next big thing potentially? Is there going to be a next thing thing, or I'm sure there will be at some point, but is there anything that we can see in advance now or is it just layering on with where we're at today? It's, it's a tricky one. And there's, there's a lot of different things uh, happening in that space. I mean, blockchain is, is kind of very big and I'm, I don't mean by that, but Bitcoin, I mean, actual blockchain itself is going to be, it's changing the way a lot of things getting done. And I'm not talking about the hype stuff and the coin stuff, I'm talking about actual tech. Uh, we use it blockchain for some of our things as well now, uh, where the transactions cannot change once they've occurred because now you've got a hash against it to make sure it's verified. So that's very cool. But I think the biggest innovation now to come would be quantum computing. I think that would change the scalability on how things run. Uh, it, there's a lot of machine learning and AI in the future development based on that. And we need very, very fast computers for those. I mean, we have very fast computers, but we need more exponentially faster computers. And I think quantum coming onto the scene would change that massively. Uh, and I think the cloud is in the sense has changed the world in, it's, it's the norm now. If you're not in the, if you're not on one of the three big, four big cloud providers, then you're not really online. Because you know, if you want to be very serious about what you do, you need resilience. You need to make sure you have um, uh, availability uh, 24 seven. So how do you deliver that? You know, you cannot, you cannot go around building your own infrastructure. I mean, you can if you're Google or, or, or Netflix, but even, you know, you still need to be, there's a, there's a cost to it. Other than that, it's very broad, like you can come up with anything, but I think those are the big, big ones, which will completely change the way in the next, at least, you know, 30 to 40 years, how we do things. But I might be completely wrong. For our Quant quantum is going to change security, right? Because if we have quantum computing and we've got that, that power, then things like brute force attack will be more accessible. So we'll need to up our encryption, up our security. I think security and identity theft have been a lot, you know, they're, they're big, obviously, and all issues around privacy and data are big, big, big issues, but that is just going to grow. People's entire digital identity is wrapped up online, probably with some third party like Google or Apple or somebody else. And that's scary. Like, and people, I don't think people, I think the you know, from a cultural perspective, I think people need to get their heads around where their data is 
and what that means for them. Um, I think that's a culture shift that needs to change and, and I don't know how that's going to pan out. Well, I think, yeah, I, think, sorry, I, think, I think, you know, even from a, a non-technical person, it's changed massively just during COVID times. You know, you go and try and do a transaction through your bank online now and there's a, a gazillion checks that there wasn't even nine months ago. Everything is, is changing rapidly because for me at the start of COVID, there was a lot of people but a lot of people that didn't, um, a, a lot of people at a certain age bracket and downward, not necessarily always the case, but, you know, my parents, for example, weren't using online banking, whereas now they are. So I've noticed there's, always, there's already been a massive shift, isn't there, in security just in the past nine months. The amount of checks you have to do, how it pings to your phone. It was happening a little bit beforehand, but I certainly think within the past nine months, it's definitely, definitely increased. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen that as well. Well, multi-factor authentication is something that only people doing used to only do in corporations and techies were the only people who did it. That is going to be part and parcel of everyone's life. And most, like I think, Zach, you might be referring to some of that, that most banks have implemented some kind of, you know, I'll text you a pin, I'll email you something, you know, some, it's the, something you have and something you know, right? I think that, is one of the changes that it's going to become commonplace and people are going to expect that and they're going to wonder why they can type in a weak password and remember it and how secure you feel operating with that provider online if they don't have multi-factor authentication or they do accept like short passwords i think people are going to be more and more suspicious adil i think you were going to say something Sorry, yeah, it was just about the quantum security piece that you mentioned. I think there's, and I think this with any technology, but you know, as we move forward, and, and SSL security is a common thing. You know, every every time we get closer to that, you know, hacking that hash, we get more Double stronger, it. you know. <laughs> more well, we do, don't we? It's like yeah, four it's nine six it. now. We just um, another. And there's something very similar, very clever concept in quantum where uh, computing, where if you uh, if somebody tries to access any uh, uh, one of the uh, interesting tidbits i found about computing was quantum was you know if, if when you share a key with you and i'm just sending you my data packet and if somebody actually looks at data packet the quantum uh state changes for that so you can check for that state and go like oh somebody actually has it in this data and you can throw it away and ask for another key well, so it's a it's a so, <laughs> it's like magic right yeah so it's it's, it's very yeah so it's, as you said like it's, it's completely you know, questioning the over norm understanding of how technology works. And I'm really looking forward to how things will change. And yeah, so as just to put a click on that part of COVID, absolutely. I know some people who said they will never uh, work remote and then they were forced to work from home. Um, you know, so it, it changes a lot of, a lot of companies have changed their perception. Uh, I know a few people who have no longer got any office to go to now because they just, they closed the offices, sold the buildings. Now they're just working from forever. Um, and it's changed the way people think about remote working now. Uh, people are much more open and perceptive on how things would go uh, when people do hire remotely now. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, there, there were some companies doing it, but now, you know, when you have uh, companies like Facebook and Google, you know, Facebook says, you know, 50% of workforce will work from home going forward. Um, Google has said something similar as well. They will, they will not make anybody come back to work ever again. You know, so it changes people's perception on how, a remote working guys perceive and that changes the dynamic of culture then because now you no longer need to be living in london to go for work with somebody in london you can work from wherever you live now 
Uh, and people in US are already doing that. You know, people who work for companies like Facebook, where they have to move to, you know, to California, now they can move back to this states where they were from and they can live with their family and friends and still work for Facebook. So yeah, it's exciting. Basecamp were an interesting one. I've always been an interesting one that game because they were always fully remote. Sorry, they weren't always fully remote because they had a remote team, but they did have a big office and they have decided to shut the office, right? So now, but they always, and this might be interesting for you, Zach. So they've always paid, I think it's Californian salaries to all their workers everywhere in the world. So they're all paid at the same rate. They don't go, oh, well, you're from Eastern Europe. We can get away with paying a bit less and we'll pay a bit less. They, they don't do that. Now they're, and, and they're proud of it, right? They're really proud of that. And I guess they should be, but you know, the companies who, the detractors say, that's not realistic for most businesses. Most businesses are not like Basecamp, right? Most businesses are not, don't have the profile that they have. They're the company created, you know, Ruby on Rails, just for people who don't know. And so they're not, they can't, they don't have the attraction and they can't, and they haven't got the revenue. So I wonder what it means for, if we look at our own little island, uh, our group of islands here, and we see people, you know, taking roles working remotely for London-based firms and salaries there and vice versa, people in London going, do you know what, I've got this job, I might just move a bit further out. I think there, there's going to be a shift, you know, of people and of work um, for that 52% of the population who can work remotely that we're told. That is, I think that's on the cards. It's been climbing pre-COVID anyway. And it's just a whole year of this remote working means that everyone is now bedded in at home to not everyone. Okay. But a lot of people have got used to it and some people haven't. And this is interesting exactly as you brought this up. Some people yeah. don't want it. Some people don't enjoy it. And I understand that too. I think, you know, I mean, we talked about on a couple of other shows. I think, you know, it, it's an interesting one. I think for a very long time, people were saying to me, I want to work remotely, I want to work remotely. You know, how many times have I spoken to you, Adil, and John, about how people, you know, you, you've got a, a wider marketplace to go to because we know the challenges that Manchester Northwest tech scene has had, you know, getting the people and stuff like that. But what's interesting is, you know, you tend to find that they said they wanted to work remotely, However, now they have worked remotely completely and haven't got the choice of coming into the office. I think people want the choice and I think people want the blend. And I think most people enjoy some remote, but also enjoy social interaction and enjoy coming into the office. And I think for me, one of the things that will be the bigger shift will be how business is able to adapt to having an office, but not having it full time if that makes sense. So places like, um, you know, uh, for example, you know, is it, is it, was it work? You know, the one where you've got like a serviced office where you can just pop in and pop out of what they call now, I forgot what they called off the top of my head. I think that what will end up happening is people will need to have a base because people will want to go into the office, but they might not necessarily want to go in all the time. And I think that is going to be the key challenge for business because you know, personally, if I'm paying for an office on a full fee, then really you want people to be there all the time. But actually, I think it works quite well, the blend. You know, certainly people enjoying working from home as well as having that interaction. And I think that's going to be massively challenging for business moving forward because what do you do? Do you pay for an office that is only half occupied? 
you know, or do you want a deal says there where there's people that haven't got an office to go to anymore? And that's something that's challenged in my head. I'm sat here all the time, you know, our lease is up for renewal soon. And I'm sat there and I'm going, well, what do I do? And people want to, I think people want interaction. Okay, but it doesn't necessarily have to be with their co-workers. Obviously, they've got something to in common with their co-workers, right? So that's makes sense to go, hey, I like to go and ch- chat to you about work. But equally, you'll see it on Twitter. People say, actually, I've got more time with my family or I spend more time talking to them at lunchtime. Or I'm going to go to, you know, post-COVID, I'm going to go to this space. I'm going to rent it with uh, one of my neighbours. We're going to share an office so we can both get out of the house. We'll see each other. We'll have a chat. We'll go for lunch together. The fact that he works in marketing and I work in IT shouldn't matter. And I think that's that's probably we're going to see more of that kind of thing. Sort of like micro offices, clusters of people in local areas commuting a mile and a half walk down the road rather than a, a seven mile train journey or bus journey. I think that's what will happen. I'm just excited about that remote working now is considered feasible. You know, there was a time when people would say like, yeah, it's good, but it doesn't work. Uh, I mean, we had our own challenges as well, because, you know, we've been hiding through this time. So onboarding has been a very challenging experience for everybody coming on board. And also we work very closely. The teams are very close knit. We communicate quite a lot. So not being able to just chat around the office. And I always say the water cooler talk is most of the time where kind of like things happen. People talk to just random things. Oh, I'm struggling with this. I'm working on that. So those are all kind of are lost. You know, people sat at home working longer hours. So there's there's pros and cons to both. And I think, yes, in an ideal world, there should be, or there could be a scene scenario where you have some remote and some office time. And yeah, people still want to interact and have meetings and things. Uh, but it's, it, it, yeah, the, to me, the main thing was to, to break a stigma around remote working. Like it, it does work. We yeah. have done just, if nothing, actually better at some of the jobs working from home uh, and it should it should be considered now as an option going forward whether the industry changes that and ex- embraces it when it actually covid is no longer a big concern is, a, is is up for debate and we'll see what happens with that but at least we have the discussion now which will happen definitely when the time's right i bet every landlord i bet every, every landlord in the uk begging remote working to go away <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're all blogging at the moment about the benefits. They'll take sound they'll, they'll be taking sound bites off this show of all the positive things we said about an office, and then just cut us at a point where we said, "But." <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. So, a deal. I mean, before we wrap up, I suppose I want to find out a little bit, bit more about the inside track on PLT in the future. Is there anything you can let us in on? on anything to expect from a technology perspective or culture process perspective? That's coming down the line. Um, so so I, I, I pretty much think we, what we do really well is we, we innovate really good. We, we know where we are wrong and when things are not working right and we know where our shortcomings are. The team's very open about it. Um, in generally, if we kind of know what things we need to improve on. So there are some very interesting things we're working upon. Uh, we are right in the middle of our cross-platform transformation uh, away from Magento. We feel like this is the times right now we have eat enough performance of, I think at some, at one point we were the, probably the biggest open source Magento installation, uh, one of the biggest in the world. Uh, but now the time's right, we, I think we've eat enough out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's the time's right to kind of step away from it. So we're looking at obviously the, the tech in, in the business, see what's out there and picking the, hopefully pick the right, make the right calls there and 
uh, the teams over the next uh, uh, quarter and two are working on the, kind of like the next phase of thing and what it should look like. And we're doing some very, very innovative stuff in there and trying to see what tech stack we can use. So yeah, exciting times ahead. I can't go into more details, actually. I wanna, I wanna tell you more stuff. Yeah, no. Uh, hopefully, you, uh, if you bring, if you call me back in in six months or years time, then we can talk about that more. Fantastic. And all that, deal. All the recruiters in Manchester will be phoning you up trying to find out what's going on. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it, it is, it's very exciting to be able to say like well, we're doing great things, but not able to talk about it. But one thing I do can talk about is we we have for the last three years survived with this um, insane growth by going to serverless stuff. Um, very heavily investing in it, uh, working very close to AWS, uh, building pretty much everything we could uh, on serverless. And that has um, immensely helped us, not just by being able to very quickly move, uh, I think uh, that has been a huge benefit, but also to keep the cost in control. That's the challenge when you build these things to make sure you don't spiral out of control and cost that we've kept on a nice tab on them. And the only, you know, any times when the cost does go up, we actually have very clear roadmap planning for making sure we either reduce it or understand more on how to keep it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely really, pretty good stuff done in the past, but like looking forward to the future, we have some very, very amazing innovative technologies coming on board. Fantastic, really interesting. Again, talking to you, Adil Ijaz, the head of innovation at a pretty little thing. Thank you for coming on today. It was, as I said, really great to talk to you. Really great to catch up um, and lots of exciting things coming from you and uh, the business over the coming months, which we'll keep an eye out for. Uh, as ever, if you want to get in touch with the show, we're available on LinkedIn um, and the rest of our contact details are on the various places where you get your podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs>